Hey, I'm super excited to show you guys something this morning. It's my backpack. Yeah, you guys giggle. This is a, you like my backpack? All right, yeah, this is nice. This is, this is top of the line. Look, they got a couple of pockets on the side. You can stick drinks in there or you can stick just about anything else in there. You zip it closed so it doesn't, like, spill. All right? Yeah, jackpot. We're good here. Um, it has, I mean, it is a fantastic bag. I kid you not, there's like a place for a computer sleeve. There's a place for your cords. On the inside here, there is places for pens and knickknacks and I wonder how long that's been there. Uh, other things. Um, best part about it, this little uh, beige strip here. Feel it. It's kind of kind of rubbery, right? You describe it as that? Yeah, this is fa- This is, uh, if you were ever carrying your computer while riding your bike in the rain, the water that would spit up from the back tire would not hit it because of this. This is a, this is a, a backpack made for commuters that have computers. I remember fondly the first time I saw this bag. First time I saw it, actually, I was in seminary. I was at uh, one of the week face-to-face classes uh, where you show up on Monday, you're there all week, and then you can go home after that. And a guy by the name of John Ray that just looked like, he just exudes Pacific Northwest. You know, long, curly hair. He's got some muscles, got some scruff going on. He walks in wearing that backpack, and I thought, that's a good-looking backpack. Wow. And I said, John Ray, let me see that. A mountain hardware. Said, Where'd you get that? So I, during a week, I, you know, I typed a little bit online, tried to find it, and didn't have any luck. But didn't really say anything else the rest of the week. On Friday, John Ray walks into class, and it's looking kind of light. And he comes up to me, and uh, hey, here you go. It's yours. I was floored. No, John, you can't, John Ray. You can't do that. No, 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 I, I assist. It's yours. I can't, can, I, can I buy it from you? No. He's a white guy. He said, but I grew up overseas in a, in a country where if somebody complimented you on something, you gave it to them. I don't think I could do that. <laughs> let's, just be, let's, just be, let's just be candid. What, do you, you like my tie? One of my favorite ties. <laughs> Think about that. Think about that one thing in your house that, that you just love, right? Think about it. Somebody tell me what it is. I'm going to walk in. I'm going to compliment it. We're going to see what happens. Could you give it away just like that? Apparently in this country, you can't have something if you're not willing to give it away. I mean, imagine that, a backpack, your favorite artwork, your car. Imagine that with something even greater like your, your kids. You can't give away your kids. You <laughs> imagine it with something even greater like, we're in church on Sunday, your faith, right? Salvation. I know that I am saved by grace through faith. I know that I deserve to be separated from God eternally. But God in his infinite kindness, his goodness, his compassion, his forgiveness, he has said, I don't want that. I'm going to give you 
eternal life through Jesus Christ. Now, if I have gotten that as a gift, as free, if I have it, why in the world would I ever want to keep that from somebody else? If we truly understand what it means to have this thing called salvation, is it right for us to keep it like close to our chest? Or should we be willing to give it out? You were studying a prophet over the last several weeks that, uh, you know, I'm not so sure he was willing to give away what he had. We're going to pray and then we'll dive in. God, there's never a wrong time to stop and come before your throne. I'd never want this to be a time where it's just a perfunctory prayer where we expect it and, and where we say amen and move on. Father, I know that this morning you are amongst us. We're in your midst. You have told us that. And yet, God, we come with so many different things on our mind and our heart. We're thinking about what happened yesterday. We're thinking about what we're doing today, maybe tomorrow. And yet you're here in our midst. Would you draw our hearts to you? Would you draw our hearts to what you want to say to us? God, I, I, I sense you want to whisper in our ear this morning, and I pray you would help us hear it. Would you help us listen well? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Grab your Bibles. Turn to the little prophet of Jonah. And as you are turning there, a little review. Over the last couple of weeks, we have been in a series that I've called American Idols. It's a study of the book of Jonah, the prophet Jonah, and we've been looking at some of the idols that he has figuratively bowed down to. We've also been looking at how in our country and in the church, Big C Church, maybe even in our church, we have had tendencies to bow down to some of these things as well. Two weeks ago, we looked at the idol of nationalistic pride. Last week, we looked at the idol of self or selfishness, and this morning, we look at the idol of religious stinginess. Religious stinginess. Today, we finally get to talk about the fish. I've told you we weren't going to, but today we get to talk about the fish. It's fantastic. If you remember the story, God told Jonah in the beginning to go to Nineveh, go to the capital city of the terrorists of Bible times, tell them that God wasn't pleased with them and punishment was coming. Jonah didn't want to do that, so he went down to the docks, went down to the shipyards, bought a ticket, hopped on a boat, tried to get as far away as he possibly could. He was trying to put 2,500 miles in between Nineveh and where he was going. Well, God, in his infinite power and, uh, well, power, decided, I'm going I'm to throw a loop into this. And he, and he threw a storm, this raging storm on the sea. The sailors on the boat were terrified. Jonah was, was sleeping. Well, they woke him up. They had this conversation, this interaction, if you want to call it that, maybe a little bit elevated uh, in volume. And ultimately, Jonah said, look, guys, you need to throw me over. And that's where we pick up our story in chapter 1, verse 17. Now, the Lord had arranged for a great fish to swallow Jonah. Jonah was inside the fish for three days and three nights. A great fish. There is a lot of debate as to whether or not this is a literal story. I haven't told you guys that yet, but you probably assumed that. Did Jonah really get swallowed by a big fish? 
was the sea. I think it was the Mediterranean. Was it even big enough to, to house a fish that would be big enough to swallow a person? Could a real-life person even stay alive in a fish for three days, three nights? What kind of fish was it? There's all sorts of questions that make us think, well, is this really a literal story? And I want to tell you this morning, I'm going to answer none of them. None of them, because you know why? They don't matter. For this morning's purposes, they don't matter. What matters is that God showed Jonah grace. God showed Jonah grace. He provided a second chance at life. He experienced a deliverance. Jonah was saved. He got what golfers call a mulligan, a do-over. God had told him to do something. He didn't do it, and he missed his shot. God said, let's give you another shot at it. Jonah deserved death for walking away from God, for not doing what God told him to do. But God did not give him death. Instead, he gave him salvation, gave him mercy, gave him compassion, gave him forgiveness. The question we get to wrestle with now, sitting here however many thousands of years later, is what did Jonah do with that? Jonah had God's grace and forgiveness. Was he willing to give it away? We get to look at this. Mainly in the heart of Jonah while inside the fish. Jonah chapter 2, verse 1. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from inside the fish. You know, the funny thing is, I don't know how many times I've read this story in preparation for this, for this series. I never caught that he prayed it inside the fish. So I had a whole like, little dialogue planned about when did, when did he pray? Was it right before they picked him up and threw him overboard? Or was it when he was in the air flailing? Or was it was after an hour of him treading water and his jacket got real heavy and he started to sink? Thankfully, I read the story again this morning and it's right here. He prayed in, in the fish. So forget that dialogue. Chapter 2, verse 2. Jonah said, I cried out to the Lord in my great trouble and he answered me. I called to you from the land of the dead and Lord, you heard me. You threw me into the ocean depths, and I sank down to the heart of the sea. The mighty waters engulfed me. I was buried beneath your wild and stormy waves. Verse 4. Then I said, O oh Lord, you have driven me from your presence, yet I will look once more toward your holy temple. I, was, I sank beneath the waves, and the waters, they closed over me. Seaweed wrapped itself around my head, and I sank down to the very roots of the mountains. I was imprisoned in the earth whose gates lock shut forever. But you, O oh Lord, my God, snatched me from the jaws of death. Verse 7. As my life was slipping away, I remembered the Lord. And my earnest prayer went out to you in your holy temple. Those who worship false gods turn their backs on all God's mercies. But I will offer sacrifices to you with songs of praise. And I will fulfill all my vows, for my salvation comes from the Lord alone. What a beautiful prayer, isn't it? I mean, a fantastic prayer. Maybe I've been too hard on Jonah over the last couple of weeks. Maybe I should have said he was bowing down to all these different idols. I mean, after all, Jonah's a Hebrew. That's how he described himself in chapter 1, verse 9, a Hebrew who, who worships the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the land and the sea, even as he is sinking down, knowing that he has run from God, that he, that he disobeyed God, he still claims that as his, as his identity. I am a Hebrew. 
And then he prays this prayer that just about every Hebrew would have, would have uh, related to because it was a prayer of thanksgiving. And it follows a standard prayer of thanksgiving format. Now, the format is this. There's an introductory summary of an answered prayer. There's a report of personal crisis and divine rescue. And there's a vow to praise God. Did you see all those in there? An uh, intro of an of a, of a answered prayer, a report of personal crisis, and divine rescue, and then a vow to praise. Verse 2, that intro to prayer, right? I cried out to the Lord my God when I was in trouble, and he answered me. I called to you from the land of the dead. So there's that intro summary, and then this report of personal crisis. Verse 3, you threw me into the ocean depths, and I sank down into the heart of the sea. The mighty waters engulfed me. I was buried beneath your wild and stormy waves. Verse 5, I sank beneath these waves and the waters closed over me. Seaweed wrapped itself around my head. Can you feel that? Ah, oh, I'm starting to get claustrophobic. I sank down to the very roots of the mountains and I was imprisoned in the earth whose gates locked shut forever. So we get this intro to prayer, and then we get this personal crisis, and then we get the divine rescue in the second half of verse 6. Jonah says, but you, O Lord my God, snatched me from the jaws of death, or yet you brought me up, you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. Now finally, that vow of praise, verse 9, it begins, but I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will pay. But I will offer sacrifice to you with songs of praise, and I will fulfill my vows. This is a good prayer. Somebody say amen. amen. This is a good prayer of thanksgiving, but it just gets even better because it gets to where I think Jonah understands that he has something he should give. Let me show you that. Verse 8. Verse 8 says this, those who worship false gods turn their backs on all God's mercies. This is Jonah praying that. Those who worship false gods turn their backs on all God's mercies. This verse is loaded. The implication is huge, okay? If those who worship false gods don't get God's mercies, then we can imply that those who don't worship false gods have access to God's mercies. Does that make sense? If those who do worship false gods don't get God's mercies, then those who don't worship false gods have access to God's mercies. I mean, think through this. Jonah, think through his instructions. Go to these people that, Jonah, you don't like, that most of the world doesn't like, that probably God is not a big fan of the things that they do. If they don't worship false gods, do they have access to God's mercy? Well, you may be thinking, James, you're stretching it, but look at how this prayer ends. The second half of verse 9. Salvation belongs to the Lord. This isn't some bold statement in like a research paper. This is a prayer. God, my salvation comes from you alone. Salvation is yours. It appears that Jonah is saying, you know what? I guess it doesn't matter what type of people, what class of people. Religious people don't deserve more grace and mercy than irreligious people. Your Jewish Hebrew people don't deserve more grace and mercy than these wild and, and vile and, and awful Assyrians. Why? Because God's salvation belongs to you. Jonah's saying this, and it's as if we're like, he gets it. 
wow, this guy who ran from God finally gets it. He understands. And we see that. And as soon as he gets it, something clicks. And God's like, let him go. And the fish, my translation says, spits him out. I prefer another translation that uses the word vomit. But I don't want to say that word in church. So in my translation, it says Jonah chapter 2, verse 10. Then the Lord ordered the fish to spit Jonah out onto the beach. He got it. He understood, right? Yeah, that's what it appears. So he has this tremendous spiritual breakthrough. And he says, I'm going to go then. God told me to go. I'm going to Nineveh. And he gets there and he gives them the message that God told him to give. Remember this breakthrough, right? And you would think that at this point the heavens open up and the angels start singing because the Ninevites get the message and they repent and they turn. And you think that Jonah, we as listeners and the original hearers of the story, you would think that Jonah's high-fiving them thinking, yes, I got it. You got it. Woo! Right? Oh. Jonah has said, God, your mercies are for those who don't worship false gods, and your salvation belongs to whoever you want to give it. Can't wait for the Ninevites to hear this. Yes! No. Jonah doesn't want to give what he has. We see this in chapter 4, verse 1 to 3. We've looked at this verse every week. We'll look at it again right now. This change of plans, because God changed his mind. Chapter 2, verse 5 to 9, the Ninevites, they heard the message. They repented. They had this great repentance, which we're going to talk about in a second. Then chapter 2, verse 10, God decides I'm not going to smite them. In fact, I'm going to give them the same thing I gave Jonah, a mulligan, a do-over. And then we see Jonah's response. The original hearers and us are thinking, yes, high fives. But in reality, this is what happens. Verse 1, this change of plans greatly upset Jonah, and he became very angry. No, you can't have my backpack. It's mine. Jonah complained to the Lord about this. Didn't I say before I left home that you would do this? That is why I ran away to Tarshish. I knew that you're a merciful and compassionate God, slow to get angry, filled with unfailing love. You're eager to turn back from destroying people, so Lord, just kill me now. I'd rather be dead than alive if what I predicted will not happen. You know, for us who are hoping that he got it, this is like, you know, the air out of a balloon right now. It's like, oh, no, Jonah, buddy, it's yours. God gave it to you. Give it to somebody else. It was free. Give it away. You know, the story is full of irony. I struggle with that word, saying it, irony. The story is full of it. Jonah gets this free gift from God, and he tries to keep it from other people. And the irony is, as he's trying to keep it, they already got it. They already have it. You see that. I mean, remember chapter 1, verse 2. Go, tell the Ninevites this message. Jonah doesn't go. Finally does go. They get it. They repent. They respond. And they act. The Ninevites act in a way that should have hit Jonah hard, in a way that he should have recognized How did they act? Well, they humbled themselves. They declared a fast. They put on burlap or garments of mourning. They prayed earnestly to God. They turned from their violence and their wickedness. This is all in chapter 2, verse 5 to 9. So they humbled themselves, declared a fast, put on burlap, prayed to to God, to Yahweh, and they turned from their violence. Why does this sound familiar? Why should this sound familiar to Jonah? 
Because every time God called out the Israelites, this is how they responded. Or this is how God told them to respond. God's people, this is how he told them to respond. We see this when God was talking to Solomon as he was uh, dedicating the temple. You know this verse, 2 Chronicles chapter 7, verse 14. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves, pray, and seek my face, turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear them from heaven and forgive their sins and heal their land. You catch what God wanted? The people to humble themselves, pray, seek God's face, turn from their wicked ways. Sounds a little bit like what Nineveh did. Different chapter, different prophet, different scenario. Nehemiah chapter 1, chapter 9, verse 1. On October 31st, the people assembled again, and this time they fasted, they dressed in burlap, and they sprinkled dust or ashes on their heads. What'd they do? They fasted, dressed in clothes of mourning, burlap, put dust or ashes on their heads. What'd the Ninevites do? All those things. Several other passages in Scripture, they show this. Bottom line is this. The Ninevites were doing exactly what God called his people to do anytime God had to call out the sin in their life. And God was treating the Ninevites exactly like God treated his own people. He was treating the Ninevites exactly like he was treating his own people. Grace, salvation, mercy, forgiveness. The Ninevites got it. Jonah didn't. It's ironic. The evil, vile Assyrians got it. God's chosen prophet didn't. You look at the comparison between chapter 1 and chapter 2. Chapter 1, kind of there's a focus on these sailors. These people were heathens and they were Gentiles. You look at chapter 2, it's a focus on Jonah. In both cases, there was a similar crisis, peril from the sea. Both cried out to Yahweh, acknowledging his sovereignty. Both were physically saved. Both offered worship. Just the heathen Gentiles got there a whole lot sooner than Jonah did. Chapter 1, verse 15 and 16. They threw him in to the raging sea, and the storm stopped at once. The sailors were awestruck by the Lord's great power, and they offered him a sacrifice and vowed to serve him. Whew. Heathen sailors, mean, vicious Assyrians, they all got it before Jonah got it. Even when we think Jonah has it up here, he doesn't have it here, you can tell, because he's not wanting to give what he has. I was reading in the prophet Hosea this past week, and Hosea came after Jonah in the chronological order of things. And God told Hosea something that I wonder if he was thinking about Jonah when he said it. Chapter 6, verse 6, God says, I want you to show love, not offer sacrifices. Jonah had promised to offer sacrifices, right? I want you to show love, not offer sacrifices. I want you to know me, my heart, my compassion, my forgiveness, my unfailing love, my willingness to relent when others repent. I want you to know me more than I want your burnt offerings. I wonder if God learned from the experience with Jonah when he was talking to Hosea. Anyways, that's, that's a side thing. Jonah wasn't willing to give what God had given him. Jonah wasn't willing to give what God had given him. He was demonstrating an idol of religious stinginess. I would 
wager that we in here, if somebody were to come asking about the salvation that God offers, that I don't think any of us would hold back from sharing it. We know that it's free. We, we know that God doesn't want us to keep it to ourselves, but that we should offer that. That's salvation. But are there other areas, are there other areas of our practice of faith that we are being stingy, that we're not willing to share, that maybe Scripture has some things to say about? 2007, a book came out titled Unchristian. For those who have been around since 2007, you've heard me reference it several times. Massive research uh, project put out by the Barna Group. And uh, the authors discerned six key traits that non-Christians thought of Christians. Okay, I'm just going to talk about two of them. One of the, the key characteristics that non-Christians described Christians as, and this is since 2007 and, and beyond, they said that Christians were seen as hypocritical. They say something with their mouth, they believe it with their head, but when it comes to putting it into practice, they don't. Sounds a little bit like Jonah. Jesus was talking to the religious leaders of the day. He was talking to the people around the religious leaders, and he told the people around them this in Matthew chapter 23. Practice and obey whatever they tell you, but don't follow their example. For they don't practice what they teach. They crush people with their unbearable religious demands and never lift a finger to ease their burden. Are we being religiously stingy if we say we believe one thing but don't actually live it out? Another trait in the book was this. They said Christians were viewed as judgmental. They said Christians were really quick to put themselves in the judgment seat, casting critique on other people, all the while not looking at the shortcomings in their own life. Sounds a little bit like Jonah. Jesus addressed this in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 7, verse 2. Jesus said, For you will be treated as you treat others. The standard you use in judging is the standard by which you will be judged. Now, an overarching theme that kind of ran through all six principles was uh, a Christian's unwillingness to forgive. Who? That's tough because as Christians, we believe that we have been forgiven fully and yet we're seen as a people who don't forgive as readily as maybe we should. Jesus addressed this, Matthew chapter 6, verse 15. If you forgive, if you refuse to forgive others, your Father will not forgive your sins. Are there ways in which we are being religiously stingy? Is the church in America, are we willing to give forgiveness? Are we willing not to judge? Are we willing to practice out loud and visibly what we say we believe? And this message was written before we went to Leadership Summit and got to have this intense conversation about a hot topic with a group of people who a lot of Christians struggle with. So you pick the group of people that you struggle with the most and ask yourself these questions. Are we willing to offer what God has so freely given us? Mercy, compassion, a slowness to get angry, an unfailing love, forgiveness, grace. Are we willing to point people towards the salvation that God gives? Or are we trying to keep these things to ourselves? It'd be easy just to brush off this morning and say, I'll, offer, I'll point people to God's salvation anytime. 
But when that brother in Christ wrongs you, are you willing to give forgiveness to them because God has already forgiven you? When your kids have broken the rules again, are you willing to discipline them? Yes, because the Bible tells us to. But are you willing to say to them, look, I discipline you because I need daily discipline from a father who loves me. Are you willing to treat those outside the church as God has so graciously treated you? The golden rule. You guys know it? Three of you know it. Good. Uh, Matthew chapter 7, verse 12. Do unto others as you would. Yeah, good job. Good job. Do unto others as you would have others do unto you. I want to change it. Oh, I thought about calling it the diamond rule, but that already, that's already like coined in the platinum rule. We're just going to tweak it a little bit, okay? Do unto others as God has already done unto you. Do unto others as God has already done unto you. Whew. I don't have a long list of practical take-home things for this morning. I, I trust the Spirit of God can convict you where needed, can encourage you where needed, and can ultimately point you into the direction of the things you need to do. I will say that from our story today, we need to be willing to offer, more than willing to offer, what God has given to us, to other people. We need to be willing to give what has been given to us. So do that this week. I'm going to pray. We're going to sing two songs instead of just one. Listen to the words, man, they fit. And during that time, ask God to give you an opportunity this week to treat somebody like he has treated you. And then look for that opportunity, and when it happens, treat him that way and thank God that he is growing you and me and us. Let's pray. Jesus, if I truly treated everybody the way you have treated me, I would wager that my life would look different. You know, it's hard to, it's hard to say that because that is, you know, that's admitting, Lord, that I don't always do that. So would you forgive me, Father, for the times I don't treat people the way you have already treated me? God, we don't want to be a people that is known as that book talked about for being hypocritical, for being unforgiving, for, for being judgmental. We want to be a people who is known to offer compassion and grace and forgiveness and mercy and, and a willingness to point people, no matter who they are, no matter what junk they bring into the relationship, no matter what sins they're committing, we are pointing them towards a Savior who can save them, redeem them, restore them, and make them into the image of Christ. God, would you help us become a people like that? Would people be drawn to us? Because as they're drawn to us, they're being drawn to you. We can't do this without your help, Father. If there is any religious stinginess in us, God, cleanse us from it. May we not be like Jonah, but may we be like Jesus. And we can only do that 
through the power of the Holy Spirit, which you have promised us and given to us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.